Forletta Investigates. Welcome to Forletta Investigates. Investigative security consultant Larry Forletta is a highly decorated former DEA agent and member of the Maryland State Police. Forletta Investigates aims to provide information on real-life encounters involving law enforcement, drug trafficking, and actual investigations. Listen to the show every Tuesday as we approach topics of crime and other issues affecting our communities with someone who has worked within law enforcement for over 25 years. Here is your host, Larry Forletta. I want to welcome you to our show called Forletta Investigates. I want to welcome our special guest, and I'm honored and fortunate to have him on our podcast. Our guest was labeled by Dan Rather, the most famous narc in America. Our guest is Robert Stuntman. Uh, welcome, Bob. Thank you, Larry. It's really great to talk to you. And as part of my monologue, um, I've mentioned that um, we would probably both agree that the success of DEA and their agents really go unheralded. They do. Uh, yeah, they, they, they do. Uh, when I took over the New York office, virtually a, a number of agents who I had known for years said, boss, can you do something? Uh, every time a drug bus gets put on TV, uh, Rudy Giuliani says the FBI did it. So nobody knows who we are. Can we change that? And that was my first job in New York and how right you are, Larry. It makes a difference. I think agents should be proud of themselves and the work they do. Um, because I think it's a very dangerous B it's very needed by the country. Uh, and they don't, they get very little uh, heralding for what they do every day. Right. Um, and I recall Bob that you were really on the forefront of really exposing DEA, uh, the work that all the agents did. And, uh, you were, I, I would guess I would call you the celebrity sack, the special agent in charge in New York. Uh, because of your visibility in New York, you were also targeted by the Colombian organizations. Um, and just a little bit more, uh, I know that you founded the International Training Division and uh, you know trained countries from around the world. Uh, you appeared on hundreds of television shows. You've been a consultant for CBS and PBS on several films. Uh, you have an autobiography called Dead on Delivery, which was the basis for uh, mob justice and uh, the killing of uh, DE agent Everett Hatcher, which we'll go into. And uh, I know that you met with First Lady Nancy Reagan and Presidents George H.W. Bush and President Clinton. So with all that said, Bob, uh, please uh, go over with us, you know, the start of your career and how you became a, a DEA agent. Uh, good question. Uh, I graduated Providence College. Uh, interesting. I'm Jewish, Catholic school. Uh, and I got invited to interview with the CIA. To this day, Larry, I have no idea why they picked me. They picked two of us in the class to be uh, interviewed. And I went 
down to Langley and I said, wow, this looks like fun. So I went to work for CIA <laughs> and I was with them for mm, almost two years, year and a half, spent some time in Vietnam with them, came back and they put me on a desk to learn Russian. And boy, that was a mistake because, as you know, not too many DEA agents like desk work. Um, so I interviewed with FBI, Secret Service, and DEA. Took DEA. I'll never forget telling my wife because those guys seemed crazy, and they did, and they, and they were, by the way. As you know. Um, yeah. So I went to work with uh, DEA, and I was only – 21 and a half, I think. And I uh, went right to where, you know, I was the youngest kid probably in the agency. So they stuck me undercover right away. And I did that. Uh, that was in DC. I went to Washington. I went to Baltimore from there. And then I, um, they asked me to start the international training division. Um. And went from there, went from international training to head of congressional affairs. Uh, during those years, I had traveled to 73 countries with DEA. Uh, a lot of flying, let me tell you. <laughs> and um, I'll never forget, I finally, I, I flew nonstop. And in those days... That was virtually impossible, except it was on a presidential plane. We flew nonstop from Seoul to D.C., and I was on the plane like 25 hours. And and I finally went in. Peter Bensinger was my boss. I know you remember him. Right. Mm -hmm. And he was also my mentor, to be honest. And I said, boss, I, I just can't take this anymore. So he said, I'm going to put you in Boston. And I don't know if you were on the agency then, but we had two agents locked up in Boston. Um, and he said, I want you to take over the office. And I did. And I spent five years there. And I spent six years in New York as uh, SAC. Um, and I got to tell you, I loved every day of it. I really did. Uh, I don't know if you were like us, but we couldn't believe they paid us every Friday. Oh, yeah. I, I, yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. I, yeah. I mean, I, I remember, I can't believe they're paying us for this. Yeah. It was, uh, I know you love the job. I love the job. Yep. I, when you talk to most agents, uh, they love the job. And uh, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of underlying factors that, uh, Really, the general public uh, really don't know what DEA did. Didn't even know what the those initials meant. Uh, but I can tell you, they know a lot now about DEA. That's for sure. Yeah, that you're you're so right. And I thought this is my own personal feelings, Larry. I thought that was so wrong because I I felt the agents should be proud of who they are and what they do. And if nobody even knows who they are, it's not much of a driver. So that's why they they used to joke and call me Video Bob. Uh, I, I was not doing it for myself. I was doing it for the agents because I wanted them to be proud of what they what they, excuse me of what they were. Yeah, well, there's there's no doubt about it. 
And if it wasn't for guys like you, um, I still think that we, we would be been behind some of the other federal agencies, as we call them, uh, and not being on the forefront of what the actual dangers involved of what uh, DE agents really did. Absolutely correct. And I know that you've been around a long time. Um, you're, you're world renowned. So one of the things that, uh, you know, that, that I know that's probably near and dear to your heart. And, and I'd like you to talk some in some detail about it. And that was the, uh, the killing of DE agent Everett Hatcher in, in New York. Sure. Well, first of all, Everett and his wife were good personal friends of ours. Uh, they didn't live far from us. Um, Everett was a very unique guy uh, as I don't know if you knew Everett personally, he was a uh, black man married to an Irish Catholic woman from Brooklyn way before that was accepted. Um, he was getting his PhD in early childhood development and was just one of the sweetest, most wonderful guys I knew. He was my exec assist for about a year. Um, and then he said he wanted to get back on the street. So uh, we used him. He loved undercover. He did some undercover. And then the FBI wanted to borrow him on one of their cases. And that was the Gus Faraci case. And, uh, you know, I still look back at that bitterly for a number of reasons. Um, the FBI um, did not tell us that uh, Gus Faraci had done 10 years in prison for uh, racial crimes. He hated black people, and they never told us this. Oh. So we stuck him in undercover in a position, frankly, he shouldn't have been in. Uh, he bought drugs from Gus Faraci once. This meeting was just to, got, to meet Gus and set up a bigger buy, and Larry, you know the old saying as well as I do, uh, that when you worked undercover, if there was a meeting but there was no dope, there was no danger. Right. Uh, you know, most mm -hmm. of the crap happened when the, the dope was being transferred. Um, so he went and met with uh, Gus Faraci, and we didn't have a lot of cover because no dope, no danger. Um, and they had very little cover. It was their case. Uh, I think Larry Hornstein, who you know well, may yeah. have been the only DEA person uh, on the cover. There may have been two. Um, they stopped at a red light. Now, you'll ask me how I know. Uh, Gus Faraci's cousin, Dominic, uh, became an informant for us. So he told us exactly what happened. So they they were following Everett, was driving in his car, and Gus and Dominic were in the car right behind them. They stopped at a red light in um, Staten Island, and Gus turns to his cousin, Dominic, and says, F it. I'm going to kill the colonel, which was uh, 
uh, Everett's undercover name. F it, I'm going to kill the colonel. And Dominic says, why? He says, I think he's a fed. And Dominic turns to him, and I will. this taught me how the Italian mob thought. He turns to Gus and says, Gus, don't say that crap. We're sitting in front of a church. Hmm. It's not, don't say you're going to kill this guy because you're afraid he's a fed. Right. Don't say it because we're in front of a church. And I will never forget that line. It showed me how they think, how they separate right. personal from professional. Anyway, unfortunately, they drove up and uh, Gus walked up behind Everett to give him some directions. And he put four nine millimeters in his head. Um, and I got called. Larry called me. I went up there, and then we chased. Gus got away. Uh, we chased him for nine months, for 11 months in New York. And it was a huge, uh, it was a huge case. We had 300 cops and agents working that case full time. Um, the cops gave us, they were great. They gave us 200 cops to work the case. Um, and we were very fortunate, had a great relationship with the NYPD. Um, finally, we kept missing Gus because, as you know, New York's a big city to right. get Boston. And we would miss him sometime by a half an hour, sometime by a couple of days. So finally, I, I, I don't. Did you know Kevin Gallagher, my deputy? Yeah, I've known the name. Okay, so I went to my deputy, Kevin, uh, and I said, I'm going to go knock on John Gotti's door and talk to him about Farachi because we, we just keep missing him. So I went up and knocked on John Gotti's door at 6 in the morning. Uh, was People said to me all the time, weren't you afraid of Gotti? No, I was more afraid of his wife. <laughs> uh, you read any of the books about him, you know, she was an absolute maniac. Mm. Um, and John came down and I said, and he knew who I was, so I wasn't worried about that. But I said, John, you know, Gus killed Everett and you, you know, he got away and we keep missing him. And John said to me, I know, Bob. And I'm really sorry about that. And I believe he was because it was an unsanctioned hit. This right. is something Gus did on his own. Uh, and I said, well, here's what we're going to do. Starting at 1 o'clock today, you are going to have a uniformed police officer 24-7 standing with every made guy in New York. They're not going to arrest him. They're not going to hassle him. That just when you see a mad guy, you're going to see a uniformed cop standing beside him, and you know who's going to do business with your people. Nobody. So either you help me get Gus, or your business is cut in half. And 17 days later, they found Gus's body in Brooklyn, and I got called out, and I don't even remember who called me. It may have actually have been Larry the second time, 
who called me and said, we found, I think it's Gus Ferracci out in Brooklyn, his body. So we went out there and that was, it was Gus, although I wouldn't have recognized him. Uh, he was a, um, he was a weight guy, meaning a, a gym guy, mm-hmm. very well built. By then he was very heavy and had a beard. I wouldn't have recognized him. And, uh, one of the agents, I'll never forget this, said to me, I wonder how why they shot him so many times. And I said, how many bullets has he gotten him? He said, 17. And then I realized I visited John Gotti 17 days before. Hmm. And I believe, I have no doubt, Larry, that that was John Gotti telling me that he took care of business now it was my turn to take care of business and get rid of the cops, right. which, which I did. So that's how we got them. And it was probably the toughest time of my life. And I'll tell you the day I decided I was going to retire. You didn't ask me this, but you'll appreciate it because of the jobs you've had. So I went to Everett's house um, to visit with his wife. And I'm in there, and she's obviously crying, and the kids are crying. It's horrible. And I saw another agent in there, in the house. And I didn't remember his name, but I knew I knew I knew him. And we said, hi, how you doing? Um, and then I realized 10 weeks before Everett was killed, I was at that agent's house because he came home one night after working two nights straight and fell asleep in his den downstairs. He didn't want to go upstairs and wake up his kids and his wife fell asleep downstairs, left his gun on the, on the table and his five-year-old son came down and blew his brains out. Oh dear. And here I am 10 weeks later in Everett's house because Everett's killed. And I was at this guy's house 10 weeks before because his child was killed. And I will just never forget saying to myself, what am I doing here? This is crazy. And that's when I decided to retire. I I mean, I had my time in. Sure. But uh, I gave it another six months and I retired. Well, you know, those are uh, certainly life-changing events for sure. They sure are. Especially when you, you know, you lose a close friend. Yep. uh, And then, you know, the senseless uh, death of the little boy. Yep. uh, And and all that stuff hits home. It it sure does. It sure does. So. um, I'm sorry. I threw you off by going. No, no. No, absolutely not. We're fine. Um. So, um, one of the things that I, I did want to get into, cause I know you had been, uh, all over the country, uh, talking about drug abuse, trying to educate, uh, our, our children in colleges or wherever they may be about the dangers of drugs. And here we are in 2021 and we're still talking about the same thing. And uh, that's that's the unfortunate part about it. Uh, but I think uh, we've come full circle. 
Uh, I still think there's, and, and you'll probably agree with this, there's still a degree, maybe even a bigger degree of politics involved in, in drug law enforcement, especially on our level when it gets up to the higher ups and especially in some of these uh, foreign countries. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's always yeah, hello, that political hello, interference. Hello, Mexico Minister of Defense. There you go. Right. Uh, and and that's, uh, you know, that's what uh, I had a previous guest on earlier today. And we certainly addressed that. In, in today's world, you know, we're losing thousands and thousands of kids to overdose deaths. And so nothing has really changed. It, it almost seems like it's gotten worse. Well, let me give you an example. Uh, the year I retired, which I'm almost embarrassed to tell you, was 1991, I think. That's uh, hard for me to believe. I've been retired for 30 years. Mm. Uh, but I, w I was only 46. So, because I, uh, anyway, the year I retired, 9,000 people died of drug overdoses. This year, it was 82,000. And it went up from 72,000 last year. Uh, for the last four years, drug overdoses have actually been going down, Larry. They went up last year because of COVID. COVID and uh, uh, substance use abuse feed off each other for lots of obvious reasons. Sure. Um, but so we're up to 82,000. Let me give you another number that I think will give you a why. Um, in 1996, the first year that we actually started keeping track of this, American physicians wrote 9 million prescriptions for opioids. Okay. So in 96, they wrote 9 million prescriptions. How many do you think they wrote in 2016? Uh, I couldn't even begin the, the number. 260 million. Yeah. Do you think that's crazy? Yeah. Now, as, as you know, Larry, this is a uniquely American problem. Uh, I, I, I do some traveling in Europe and Southwest Asia for speaking. I, I do a lot of medical doctor speaking. And uh, I remember I was there two years ago. The uh, dean of the University of Bologna Med School stood up in front of 900 Italian doctors. And he said to me, Bob, I know all American doctors are very smart. Are they smarter than every other doctor in the world? Because this is uniquely an American problem. Uh, if you get injured in Europe and you go to a hospital emergency room, the drug for pain is Tylenol. If you get injured in America and go to an emergency room, the drug for pain is hydrocodone, oxycodone, etc. Uh, it is a whole different mindset. And today, although most people die, those overdoses we were talking about, most people die from fentanyl and drugs like that. And right. more, more, as you know, methamphetamine. But it, I, I, still fentanyl is the biggest killer. 
82% of them started on pharmaceutical drugs. So pharmaceutical drugs are the gateway drug. Uh, it was honestly, it was never marijuana. Uh, and certainly not now it's not marijuana. It's, it's pharmaceutical drugs. Uh, oh, yeah. And then the question comes up, Larry, you and I are not the same age, but we're, you know, both a little bit older. Um, when, when I was DEA, the drug for kids was grass, acid, special K, you know, that kind of crap. Sure. Uh, maybe some cocaine and maybe methamphetamine. And if you were really bad, it was heroin. Right. Did you ever think heroin would be a kitty dope compared to fentanyl? Which no. is what it is. Right. I mean, right. neither did I. Um, anyway, so when and how did we change from street drugs to pharmaceutical drugs? Because now when I do high schools, one of the first things I ask them, I talk to them without teachers there, is what's the drug of choice? in this town. And I hear all the time, Vicodin, Vicodin, Vicodin. So the question becomes when and why did they change? What made doctors writing started writing so many prescriptions for pharmaceutical drugs? And I think the year was 95 that it really started to change. Uh, that's when we went from street drugs to pharmaceutical drugs uh, there were two major reasons. Number one, OxyContin got introduced to the market in middle of 95, and it was sold on a lie. It was sold as being 1% addictive. Well, you and I both know that's absolute BS. Uh, and it was sold to every doctor in the country as a not very addictive medicine. Um, now, despite what most Americans think, and I hope you will agree with this, doctors don't learn a lot about pharmaceuticals in med school. They learn what they know from the pharmaceutical reps. And the rep tells them it's not very addictive. They believe it. So they started pouring it out on the right. street. And then secondly, uh, I will bet everybody listening to this show, including you and me, if we've been watching TV, which I do a lot during COVID, um, has seen a lot of pharmaceutical ads on television. We see them all the time. Uh, I read a study once that the average American sees about 70 pharmaceutical ads a month on television. What does that pharmaceutical ad tell Americans? Forget what the drug is for. What is the overall message it gives? If you got a problem, take a pill. pill. Yeah. That's what it says. Now, how many Americans knew that advertising on television for pharmaceutical drugs is illegal in every other country in the world except New Zealand. Mm -hmm. So New Zealand and America are the only two countries in the world 
that allowed TV advertising of pharmaceutical drugs. Hello? Yeah. What is wrong with us, Lair? What is wrong with us? So I go to see my doctor, and he or she doesn't give me a pill. I think they're a lousy doctor because I've seen all day. I got to take pills for everything. And so doctors have been pushed into prescribing pills. Well, I, I agree with you 100%. I mean, I, I think even if you look back at DEA, we never had a strong enforcement effort on on the pills. Um, right. We had a diversion unit, a very small diversion unit. And we used to call we used to call those guys and women wannabe agents. Exactly. You remember? And, oh, absolutely. And I, I think when we can all look back now and uh, look at where the priorities should have been, they weren't. And that may have been the time because we were looking at heroin and cocaine. No, you're, and, you're and right so on the other drugs. Yep, uh, you're uh, right uh, on the money. We missed the right time to be doing it. We should have started around '94, right? Spending a lot of time on pharmaceuticals. We didn't, and we missed the boat. And uh, you know, I'm not proud of it. We did miss it, um, and that's the reason we we are where we are. Um, you know, one of the big problems with opioids is that it's tough. I, I tell every audience I speak to, and you may agree or disagree, that if a heroin addict walks through the door, I will probably tell you in 30 seconds he or she is a heroin addict. I can, I cannot pick out an opioid addict. Very yeah. tough to pick a pharmaceutical opioid addict. Right. And and doctors always say to me, Bob, I went to med school. I can pick him up. In case you hadn't noticed, Larry, occasionally doctors will act a little bit arrogant. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I love it when they do that because I turn to them and I say, you know, doc, I should have thought of that. Um and then I put up a picture. I, I say, when a doctor says to me, I can pick out an opioid addict, I always give them two words. And you know what the two words are? No, they're not BS. They're Rush Limbaugh. Now, why would I say Rush Limbaugh? You probably know. Self-admitted opioid addict, OxyContin uh, addict for three and a half years. Mm-hmm was using four 80s a day on wow. average, an amount that would kill most people. Um, got caught with over 1,580 milligram tablets in his house by the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Department, etc. Oh, he was in treatment for 45 days. He admitted all of this publicly on CNN. Right. Now, I don't care whether you love or hate Rush Limbaugh, not the point the largest radio audience in the world on the radio for three and a half years as an Oxycontin addict. And nobody knew it, including you and me. So it's a tough drug to pick out and it makes the problem even worse. 
Yeah, and 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 now when you begin to look at the enforcement um, of you know the pill mills, uh, the doctors, the pharmacies, um, there's still a lack of enforcement on some of the pharmaceutical companies, as we know. And usually, and what we've been seeing is that the pharmaceutical companies are being charged criminally, but the CEOs get get to go back to their yachts. Yep. Well, thousands of kids are dying every day. And, and that's and that's when you call, um, you know, you look at our Justice Department and you look at um, our political structure and you know the amount of influence that these major pharmaceutical companies have in this country. If you remember, I think it was three years ago, Larry, President Trump said that he would love to institute the death penalty for anybody who sold drugs that resulted in a uh, minor dying from the drugs. And my answer to that was, I am completely in favor of that. As long as you are willing to start with the Sackler brothers. Yes. Who headed Purdue, who killed right. more kids in this country than any dope peddler ever killed. Yep. Yeah, and and, uh, and of course you know that hasn't happened. No, and uh, it's not going to happen. Correct. And uh, we we look at a at a lot of situations that in this country, and um, I think our Justice Department became uh, too political over the years. Um, some, you know, you worked with a lot of federal prosecutors like yep. Rudy Giuliani, for example, and they were all highly respected. Uh, and we all got along fine. We worked well together. Uh, but now the times have changed. And uh, so uh, I'm just uh, happy to expose a lot of this uh, with former DEA agents who can yep. now really speak their mind. <laughs> because, as you know, we sort of lost our First Amendment when we became agents. Yeah, we did, didn't we? Yes, we did. Yep. Under the under the so-called rules and regulations of uh, DEA and DOJ. Uh, so, but um, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, because we did, you did mention about the pharmaceuticals being the gateway drug. But I, I know years ago that we did a study when I was in Baltimore, uh, and we, we did a, a lot with the clinics uh, in the methadone clinics in Baltimore, and one of the things that we found amazing back then was that they were calling marijuana a gateway drug. Yeah. Oh, we did it in this country for years. Right. For years. And, and so, um, as you know, now the states are making changes in their laws, uh, although the federal government still, you know, still doesn't recognize state law. Um, and, of course, you know, mar marijuana, we have to recognize it as a drug because of the THC. Um, but now I think things have changed dramatically from, uh, you know, the, the marijuana farms that the government had at the University of Mississippi, yeah. uh, studying the different strains of, of marijuana. So, and I know that you had been all over the country talking about it and debating uh, quite well over, over marijuana. And now there's an, another side of marijuana that we didn't talk about back then, and it's now its medical use. 
Yep. And so uh, I saw an article uh, that you wrote about it. So why don't you get uh, give us some right? Uh, it was an op-ed. Like it was an op-ed piece that was in the Hill newspaper and Forbes magazine. Uh, and let me let me tell you what happened. First of all, you're right. For a lot of years, we said marijuana was the gateway drug, and the uh, basic reason was. Well, kids always use marijuana before they go on to use other drugs. Uh, Yeah, and they all drank milk before they used other drugs. Did the milk cause the other drug use? Uh, Just because something comes before something doesn't make it to be uh, a, a gateway. Anyway, almost every study, in fact, one came out yesterday, in the journal Pain Addiction, that uh, I don't know if you saw that once again showed that marijuana is not a gateway drug. But the bottom line is, two and a half years ago, Larry, I had um, a very serious back surgery. It was uh, uh, an 11-hour surgery, a 19-inch cut. It, it was tough. Um And I was fine for seven weeks, recovering nicely. And then I got hit with a back infection, spine infection. And I almost died. It was unbelievably painful. Well, from that time on, my back has been really bad. Uh, I I can walk, but I got to take my time. Can't walk one, two, three. And nothing worked. Honestly, I... You, you name it, I tried it, except grass, obviously. Um, so nothing worked. So the only thing that I have this great pain doctor who said, Bob, I think you better get used to it. We don't want to give you shots in your back because you had that infection. And I don't want to wake it up again, et cetera, et cetera. So the only thing I can give you is hydrocodone, oxycodone, or you may want to go see a marijuana doctor. So I went to see the doctor, and he was an MD, and he knew what he was talking about, and he was a smart guy, and we talked about it. He said, well, what's your biggest problem? I said, sleeping. I, I, I don't go to sleep because of the pain in your back. So if I get two hours sleep a night, it's a lot. And it was just horrible. And you you know what it's like not to sleep. Right. So he said, well, I want you to take some, some of this specific marijuana. It's great for sleeping. Take it before you go to sleep. And I said, okay. Now, I walked out with a, pres- not a prescription, a recommendation. And honest to God, Larry, I was feeling guilty because of what I've argued all these years. Right. I've talked about drugs and talked about negativity, and I'm feeling guilty. What am I doing with this recommendation for marijuana? And then I said to myself, and I, I literally stopped and said this to myself, wait a minute, my only option are uh, opioids, oxycodone, hydrocodone. Last year, they killed 72,000 people. To the best of my knowledge, 
nobody has ever died from a marijuana overdose. Why should I be embarrassed about using this and not using opioids in their place? And that's when I decided to write the article to not be, you know, not be embarrassed about it, not to hide it. Uh, I've always been, I like to think a pretty honest guy. Uh, nobody has ever heard me say a bad word about TEA. I do a lot of speaking and you and I both know, Larry, there are a lot of retired agents who are bad mouthing DEA. Right. Never done that. Never will do that. But I said, I've got to write this article and I will tell you the medical marijuana. I, I think it's terrible stuff for under age 25 because it changes the cellular structure of the brain. No argument about that. Uh, I think for adults over 25, probably no better or worse than alcohol. Not a great medical model to follow. If you've got uh, an alcoholic in your family, you know what they can cause. Um, but for under 25, it is a terrible drug. As a medicine, if we handle it correctly, I think it's got the chance to be a significantly good medicine. I think it should be changed from schedule one to two. And that way it's much easier to do research and get where we're going with it. I mean, you tell me, Larry, you're a smart guy. Obviously, I'll be upfront with you before I said I'll go on Larry's show. I found out who Larry Forletta was. And you're a smart guy. You got a great reputation. Why should opioids be scheduled uh, looser? The marijuana. You you tell me. That's a that's a very good question, and because as the differences between the schedule one and the schedule two, because the schedule one has no medically accepted ah, ah, correct, and if schedule two does that, right. Except we know there are now twelve studies that look at medical marijuana. Now, by a study, Larry, I mean peer review medical studies, not Oprah magazine or high times magazine. I mean, medical studies that are peer reviewed. There are now 12 that say it is medicine for some diseases, certainly epilepsy, certainly seizures on young kids, and certainly non-cancer pain, long-term non-cancer pain and insomnia. Well, the studies are published. They may be not the best, two of them are great, but there's enough studies to now say it is a reasonable medicine and we should be looking at the options in a stronger way. And that's why I went public with it. I, believe me, Larry, my gut reaction was not tell anybody from DEA I'm right. doing this mm -hmm. because I figured I'd take a lot of crap. Right. Uh, well, what, what do you think the resistance is, Bob, from changing it from a Schedule 1 to a Schedule 2? I think a lot of us 
and I say us because we're still agents. Uh, I think a lot of us still believe that marijuana is a gateway drug and that there is no medical value. I mean, those are the only two reasons why you can begin to justify a one rather than a two. Anything else is, well, you may be right, but that doesn't mean it should be a one. Maybe it should be a two. Um, and I think those days are over and we're just beginning to learn that. I, I will tell you, I called Peter Bensinger. Now, Peter, I worked directly for Peter for five years. Uh, he Honestly, Larry, he was my mentor, uh, one of the most wonderful people I've ever met. And he is dead set against marijuana, as you know, if you've heard him speak. And he still does a lot of speaking. And I called him up. I said, Peter, shut your mouth. Give me 10 minutes. I want to tell you what I'm doing. And then you tell me whatever you want at the end. So he said, okay. And I told him. And his reaction to me was, I remember the words, I think the time may be right, and I think you're the right person. And I was I was shocked, Lair. I really was. Yeah. Now, I got that reaction from a lot of DEA people. Because as you know, you and I still are close to lots of agents. Right. Neither one of us left the agency. We don't get a paycheck from the agency. We get a retirement check. But we don't get it from the agency. But um, we still are part of the agency. Uh, and I got a lot of reactions like Peter, surprisingly. Now, I still get some guys, and when I say guys, I mean women too, who say, oh, that's BS. You know, you shouldn't have given up on marijuana. But a lot of people surprised me by saying the time is finally right. And frankly, because you do so much public speaking, you're probably the guy to do it. Yeah, and and that's uh, you know change and resistance is is always hard. It's not easy, um, but uh, medical professionals are the ones that should be making these decisions. Absolutely. You know, all we are in, in, at the at the end of the day are cops. Yep. Um, and, and so, and, and we're both proud to be one. Absolutely. But we're we're just cops. You're right. That's a great way of putting it. And uh, so when and if it becomes a Schedule 2, uh, I would have my trust in the medical profession yep. to make those decisions. Well, just let like, them make it. Yeah, they, just like right. Just like if they come up, you know, they, they come up with treatments for cancer, COVID, yep. et cetera, yep. et cetera. Yep. That's something that the medical profession should take the lead on that. And you have to look at whether government controls are really the answer at this time. Um, so uh, I guess we'll wait and see what happens, but I, I do believe in what you're saying. The wind is blowing in a different direction. Yeah. It, I mean, uh, I don't debate marijuana anymore because I lost that fight. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I yeah. And uh, honestly, I don't usually even talk about marijuana uh, because when I get asked by, I talk to a lot of corporate 
groups and a lot of parent groups, schools, but a, a lot of doctors. And when people ask me questions about my own, I obviously answer, but I always say to them, look, last year, 70, last year was 82,000 died from opioid overdose. Many of them young adults. Uh, nobody died from marijuana. I really don't get that interested in marijuana. Right. Now I did when I started taking, and by the way, it absolutely cured my insomnia. It's unbelievable. Right. Well, um, Bob, I uh, really appreciate you taking your time uh, to do this. Uh, you have been one of the outstanding spokespeople for uh, for DEA from its uh, very beginnings. Um, I know that you now have your own company called the Stuntment Group. Yep. And you provide a lot of presentations from law enforcement, medical, school systems, and a whole lot of communities. Yep. And how does somebody get in touch with you, Bob, if they're interested in hearing you speak? You just go to my website, uh, com, or Google me. It'll bring you to the website, Robert Stutman, and uh, you'll give our office a call. That's great. Bob, listen, I appreciate you coming on. Well, thank you uh, for having me, Larry. It's uh, really been a pleasure. It's been my pleasure, honestly. Now, I'll tell you something your audience doesn't know. you got a great reputation in DEA. So it's it's great to uh, to be on the show. Thank you, Bob, and I, and I appreciate that. Forletta Investigates. Thank you for listening to Forletta Investigates. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You could follow Forletta Investigative Security Consultants on LinkedIn and at FCIS LLC on Facebook. And if you are in need of investigative or security services, please go to FCISLLC.com.